0: Welcome to the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Thursday, May 27th. I'm Aaron Roberts. In last week's special topic episode, we talked to Bill Hyde, Executive Director of Olefins and Elastomers, about the C4's market. After we wrapped up the formal discussion, the conversation continued.
1: Bill, you touched on a very important point in, in the long term, Um, So, I guess my question would be to you, what are some of the long-term implications that you see uh, for butadiene supply? And and this is important because, by and large, refiners are seeing peak gasoline demand. They're thinking that uh, petrochemicals is, is, is the way to go to diversify their product slate, and that has a whole host of implications on olefin supply but uh, tell us a little bit more about what you see going forward in the next five, 10 years from a butadiene and C4 supply. Standpoint. Yeah.
2: So, so over the next, uh, over the next five to 10 years. So if, if we put it in that five to 10 year timeframe, um, what it looks like, uh, first, first of all, butadiene demand grows, uh, more slowly than ethylene demand grows. Um, and so, <clears throat> Uh, so the crude C4 supply should grow more rapidly than butadiene demand grows. Uh, so, so that says, you know, if you're, if you're an ethylene producer, who's looking at a, uh, at a project now and you haven't pulled the trigger, uh, you're looking at a project that's going to come online, you know, in that five to 10 year period, you need to think long and hard. About whether or not you're going to put in extraction capacity or not, you don't have to. You can put in a hydrogenation unit and recycle a crude C4. You know, hydrogenate it all the way to butane, recycle it as cracker feedstock. Uh, you know, sell it in the uh, in the LPG markets. Um, you know, you've got options with that crude C4, uh, and so you need to think. Long and hard about whether or not you want to do that. Uh, where, you know whether you you want to be a player in the butadiene markets. But for those that are already in it, um, you know we we do think that uh, that Butadine demand is going to grow somewhere around two percent, maybe a little less than two percent per year on average. Uh, you know once we, once we get back to you know, normal. So let's say you know, starting in 2022 or 2023, uh, you know, and then and then looking forward, ob- because obviously we had a big dip in 2020. 2021 is going to show a real sharp growth, but we're not we're not going to get all the way to equilibrium in 2021. So I think 2022 will probably also, on a percentage basis, it's also going to look strong, but eventually we're going to get to the point where the butadiene markets are are well supplied and trending and trending longer and so when when we look at our longer term price forecast you know that in that 5 to 10 year window the spread between the butadiene price and the naphtha price which is how we think of the margin uh is is actually trending down to to relatively low values so our um uh our understanding of the break even cost of producing butadiene is you need a you need a butadiene price roughly 90% of naphtha plus $300 a ton that's that's uh, kind of our rule of thumb for break even mm-hmm. and our our spread uh in that 5 to 10 year period is about naphtha flat plus uh 350 to 400 so are we better than break even? Absolutely. Um, are we, you know, are we strong margins and and really incentivizing a whole lot of uh, investment in butadine extraction? Not really. Uh, and uh, and you know, according to our balances, we don't we don't really need a whole lot of incremental butadine capacity. we're We're adding a lot now. Uh, and and so global operating rates are going to come down, and it's going to take a while. To absorb the existing capacity now there's a lot of forecast risks out there um, you know, and some of them you mentioned uh, you know one of them is what you know, what is the sustainability impact going to be on the ethylene units? Um, you know how much plastic is going to be recycled as plastic and not recycled all the way back as cracker feedstock you know this whole whole plastic circularity uh, discussion we're we're a long ways from having any sort of resolution. If I had to bet, uh, you know, I'd I'd bet that we're looking at an all of the above kind of uh, uh, recycling uh, technology, right? So some of it will be separated out and mechanically recycled and displaced virgin, say polyethylene as an example. Others of it, other parts of it will be chemically treated somehow, maybe, you know, maybe through pyrolysis or something else. Uh, and come back as, uh, as cracker feedstock, you know, so I would I'd say right now, our base case says the sustainability impact on butadiene supply is kind of neutral to maybe, you know, maybe a little negative, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty in that outlook. Um, and, um, you know, so that's something we're watching. You mentioned the the crude oil to chemicals, right? with the uh, with with companies, you know what's the driver? The driver is we're hitting peak oil. There's a lot of countries that are going to have big puddles of oil that are still underground that they want to monetize. And if they can't do it as transportation fuel, you want to do it into the petrochemical space. Well, you know, petrochemicals are tiny uh, at least today. They're tiny compared to gasoline demand. Yeah. Uh, it's like
1: pouring a pitcher of water in a small glass, right? We've done that yeah. analogy in WPCs before,
2: yeah. right? Yeah. I love, I love that picture, right? You know, it just, it just doesn't fit. So, <laughs> but, but what, what the way we're modeling those crude oil to chemical units, at least on the C4 side is we're, we're basically thinking of them as heavy naphtha crackers. Uh, and so when those units come up, that's a huge amount of crude C4. That becomes available now. Does it displace some of the existing production? It's going to have to, Uh, and uh, and so you know you still look at what that uh, what that butadiene to ethylene ratio is. Um, You know, in our view, it's it's trend the butadiene to ethylene production ratio uh, from the you know from the cracker uh, at the at the cracker level is trending higher. Yeah, it's going to go, and as that as it trends higher, we don't have a place to put that incremental butadiene. Uh, so, so that's something that, uh, that the industry is going to have to think about, uh, and you're going to have to include that in kind of the, in kind of the valuation. It, it doesn't cost that much to put in a hydrogenation unit. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a hundred million dollars, give or take, um, you know, to, to completely hydrogenate all the C4s and, uh, you know, in a, Four or six billion dollar project, a hundred million dollars is kind of almost round off error, right? Um, but it's but it has a, a big impact or could have a significant impact on you know on how you value heavy cracking versus light cracking, uh, you know, and those, those sorts of those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, but it's interesting that you bring up uh hydrogenation bill because mm-hmm. you not only get normal, you also get ISO, and with yep. the ISO, you're still. Compounding the problem on the gasoline end, right? Because what do you do with iso? Well, you alkylate it. Well, I don't need as much gasoline, so uh, do I have to build more alky unit? You know, so the, this these aren't very easy uh, topics to cover. And I think our, our our crew that's doing the refining pet chem study should be commended because they're they're trying to tackle these issues in that multi-client study. They
2: they really are.
1: Uh, they really are, and
2: uh, you know, they, they there's no. From a gasoline blend stock perspective, there's no pull on alkalate. Now, you you know, you might say, well, can I build a unit and force it into the gasoline pool? You know, but, uh, but in terms of an actual need for high quality blend stocks with, you know, alkalate uh, is liquid gold when, yes. when you're thinking about, uh, a gasoline blend stock, right? And, you know, it has a, it has low vapor pressure, no sulfur, no olefin content, um, right. It's you great. know, high, a high octane number.
1: It's you, expensive uh, though.
2: <laughs> well, expensive. It, it can be expensive, um, you know, but the blend value is high. Right. So I, I don't know that it's expensive relative to its blend value. And, uh, and but one Napa, thing it,
1: right. But when Naphtha will do, right. When, yeah. Well, that's Napa right. will do. Yeah.
2: But one thing that it allows you to do though, is blend in a whole bunch of junk. Right. So, that's uh, true. So if you look at the, the net impact, uh, you know, it might not be all that expensive, but our guys are saying we don't need it. Uh, so, so if you're going to build more algae, you got to figure out a way to kind of force it into the gasoline pool. And if you're doing that, what's coming out, uh, you know, so that's that it's, it's a really complex thing, you know, or, but you can drop it into the cooking gas market. Uh, that, uh. You know, assume, assuming that we're going to continue to have a cooking gas market, um, uh, that nobody, there's nobody that cares, you know, in bottled gas, whether it's ISO or normal, at least I don't think there are. No. Um, oh, yeah. and, and the, the other guys, uh, you know, in, in Europe, when they crack butane, uh, they do crack a mixed butane stream there. So, you, you know, it can be done. It's not as good as cracking normal, not, not close to as good as cracking normal, but it can be done. You know, so those are, those are the kind of things longer term that, that we've got to think about, you know, one, one of the, the other things that we think about longer term on the demand side is the transition to, um, you know, more electric vehicles, less internal combustion vehicles, and what impact that has on synthetic rubber. Um, and it's really, yeah, it's really in two kind of buckets one of them is when you build uh you know what what our guys are calling bevs right battery battery electric vehicles um you know never never use long words if you can use a, a pithy acronym right so <laughs> so so if if when you build a when you build a bev you don't have nearly as many rubber components right you don't have uh, hoses and gaskets and belts there's not nearly as many of them uh, and I mentioned earlier on in the, uh, in the discussion, that's about 15% of SBR demand is, uh, is other auto parts. Uh, so that's, that's one thing, uh, you know, as, as the electric vehicles and, you know, the hybrid vehicles, they, they're smaller, but you still have them, but in the pure battery vehicles, uh, you, you just don't have them. Uh, and so we'll, so we'll see a bit of a, of a demand drop there, um, And then the other bucket, of course, is the tire and the future of the tire is, is really uncertain right now. Um, there's, if you, if you do research on tire prototypes, you'll, you'll see everything from non-pneumatic tires. So there Michelin has perhaps the most famous one. It's called a tweel, which is a tire and wheel integrated, uh, system where, uh, you've got a polyurethane kind of spoke structure and then rubber tread around the outside of it. And that's, that's all there is to it. You know, there's no, the, the, like I said, non-pneumatic. Um, and, uh, you, you go from there and then there's other prototypes that are actually spheres, you know? So they look like that. Um, what, what's the star Wars robot, the, the oh. ball, BB-4, say BB-3, I don't know what the, yeah. whatever BB yeah, something yeah. BB-something, right. Uh, that one, you know, uh, and, you know, you sort of have, if your tire's a sphere, you have to have it kind of uh, magnetically connected to the tire somehow. I, I don't understand the technology, but I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen these spherical tire prototypes. Uh, and obviously a sphere has a lot more synthetic rubber than what we have now you know a donut basically um so so there's there's a lot of interesting things there and and in terms of exactly which synthetic rubber uh that you're looking at and um and interestingly enough there's there's also an impact on natural rubber natural rubber um it's not really good uh for high speed treads um but it is stiff, uh, and so it finds a home in the sidewall compounds. Uh, and uh, you if if you're not close to the tire markets, you probably don't appreciate. but there's something you know, on the order of thirty different grades of rubber in a typical passenger car tire. Uh, so it's it's a highly engineered, you know, tight spec, kind of product. Certainly in in the uh, developed world, it's a tight spec in the, in the developing worlds, you know, some of the specs are a little looser. Um, but the point, the point is that we might actually see a little incremental increase in natural rubber, uh, demand into the passenger car tire market as you need to have stiffer sidewalls because these BEVs are heavier than the traditional internal combustion engine-based vehicle, batteries are heavy, uh, mm-hmm. and so the tires need to be able to hold up uh, incremental weight, and that means a stiffer sidewall. Uh, so that's that's a uh, you know these are kind of the interesting trends. Really uncertain. Uh, I, I I hear tire producers. I I go to tire sort of focused conferences, and I hear people say things like over the next 5 to 10 years we'll see more changes in the in the tire than we've seen in the previous 100 and some of that is sensors and you know and and in- integration into the vehicle management system but some of it is just you know what is the tire going to look like and and you know what sort of compounds are we going to use and and all of that so it's a it's an interesting time but it's also a time of great uncertainty from a synthetic rubber demand forecasting perspective
1: that's a great uh segue bill because i think uh aaron correct me if i'm wrong but i we in a future podcast uh, we're going to get one of our automotive colleagues to come on and talk about the automotive market because it's so integrally linked to light olefins and the C4 olefins uh, value chains, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And those guys are facing some pretty significant headwinds right now. Um, you know, we, we, We talk about, you know, how they dropped 16% uh, globally last year and how they're going to rebound, but they've got semiconductor shortages. There's been some issues, you know, the earthquake in Japan caused some supply chain problems for them. The winter storm here, um, you know, we've focused on synthetic rubber here today because we're talking about C4s, but polyurethane foam for seat cushions was a significant uh, supply constraint for them. Uh, And so... So they they actually would have liked to produce more light vehicles here in the first half of the year than they've been able to for some of those reasons. So it'll be it'll be really interesting to hear what uh, what they have to say in terms of, you know, the rest of this year, but even moving moving through the next, uh, you know, four or five years or more.
0: Well, with that, um, it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill. It was Great to hear so many different things in depth.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it.
0: Tune in next week when we talk to Mike Wall, Executive Director of Automotive Analysis, about what's happening in the auto industry and how it ties into petrochemicals. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. Check out ihsmarket.com chemical for more information on subscribing to our services. And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send an email to me at aaron.roberts@ihsmarket.com. at ihsmarket.com. Until next time.